The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Bear bounce, or have we truly turned the corner? That is the debate as we enter a new month for your money. The Investment Committee here to take that on with me today. Joining me for the hour, Shannon Sakosha, Brenda Vingello, right here on set, Joe Terranova, Jim Labenthal. Let's go to the wall, check the markets, 12 noon in the east. Carl just said, there's the good day so far for stocks. 4140, we'll call it for the S&P 500. Dow's good for about a quarter of 1%, 32.9. Got the Russell negative 260. That's noteworthy on the 10-year note yield. Uh, Joe Terranova sitting right in front of me. He's got the suit. The suit is back. <laughs> that says a lot. The suit is back. Making a statement. Of, of what? That this is something more than a bear bounce? Might be. So if you, if you think about uh, advances in the market of greater than 7%, which is what we had in the month of July, and what you're really doing is reversing June, right? Down significantly in June. You come back in July. What other times have you had that type of performance, Scott? Well, April of 2020, March of 2009, that's a very compelling reversal of a negative price performance. Subsequent to that, you have seen that it has been a market bottom and you've had a very strong recovery that has followed thereafter. So I, I think we're also in a place where we still have a lot of skepticism. People do not. We're beginning the show talking about exactly that. And I think what you have to do is you have to kind of eradicate some of that skepticism. And that's why I think there's further upside. And it's reflected in my continued ownership of the QQQ. Okay. Um, you have a whole bunch of rebalancings for the Joe T uh, ETF. Yep. We'll get to all of those coming up. So Good. names, sectors, new things, new ideas. Got rid of some stuff, added some new things. We're going to go through that uh, in just a bit right here. What about you? How, how do you want to address this, um, yeah. whether this is a bear bounce or something more? Joe says you have to eradicate the skepticism. I think that's what he just said. Mm -hmm. um, and he took there's a, a lot of skepticism step. because maybe you need to see more because, before you can eradicate all of it. Well, that's the truth, isn't it? That is the truth. But I like the step that Joe just took. He took a stance. Now, you know what my stance is. I mean, you know what my stance is. I do think the lows are in, and I think we're going higher from here. But why? Why? Okay, because what Joe is pointing out to the skepticism is that you can make a bull case and you can make a bear case very easily. And quite often, it's on the same topic, right? The labor market is strong. That's bullish. But layoffs are picking up. That's bearish. Uh, you know, the Fed, uh, Fed funds futures are saying we're going to peak in a few months, but we haven't seen the lagged effects of the rate hikes so far. I can do that all day long. So I want to make this simple. And I'm going to tell you why I'm bullish. I'm going to go to a detail that to me matters. Gasoline futures broke below $3 a gallon today. Okay, 294 is we're looking right now. That's off 30% from the high, Scott. And you haven't seen that full 30% show up at the pumps. You just haven't. You've seen about half of it because it takes time to translate through from the refineries to the transporters to the distributors 
dealers to the retailers. But it's going to show up. It's going to help consumption. It's going to help sentiment. It's going to help sentiment not just for consumers but for investors. Um, I think that is yet to come. I think it's important. But what I'm really saying here is the single most important thing is inflation coming down, period. Okay. You said the bull case can be made easily. I did. Uh, Got a note just dropped to Bravco Lakos. J.P. Morgan says the following. We believe it is better than fairly valued, speaking of stocks right now, better than fairly valued given the shift in industry mix to higher quality companies, although the activity outlook remains challenging. We believe that the risk reward for equities is looking more attractive as we move through the second half. Shannon, Piper Sandler, Piper Sandler today. Uh, says the S&P year-end 47.75. We believe the rally has more room to run. It may have more room to run, but is it still a bare bounce, or is it, in fact, something more like these two gentlemen in front of me think it might be? Well, I, I think it's a little early to tell, but I think indications are, if you look at last week alone, Scott, we digested a negative GDP print. We digested um, and expected 75 basis points. But, you know, six months ago, if you had, we had been talking about two 75 basis point hikes in a row, um, we would have thought the sky was falling. And so I think there is some grace being afforded to companies right now. Just look at um, um, EPS surprises, positive and negative EPS surprises. Both, both types of surprises are actually yielding stronger returns in the market. That to me says investors are looking at the landscape, looking at the next six months and saying, okay, we're preparing for the worst, earnings growth is down, we're certainly down, it's, the, it's probably going to be the worst quarter since the fourth quarter of 2020 in terms of year-over-year -year earnings growth. But we, this is exactly what we were expecting. And so I think if you think about that, could it be a bear market bounce? Absolutely, especially if we start to get some overhang from the midterms in October, if inflation turns out to be, we've got two prints, remember, before the September Fed meeting, if that those turn out to continue to be moving higher. But I agree with Jim, look at the commodity market. We haven't seen that flow through PPI yet, which means we haven't seen it through, through CPI. Those are trailing indicators, so is the employment market. But if I look at the landscape for companies, what management is saying. They are saying, this is the environment that we're preparing for. High quality companies, free cash flow, strong management. That's where I don't think this is a bear market bounce. Those are the companies that I think can continue to perform well in the second half of this year. Okay. Um, by the way, it was Kalanovic, Marco Kalanovic, not, uh, not Dubrovko. There it goes. Kalanovic, he likes to drop these notes like right when we come on the air. I think he does it on 12 purpose. noon and he goes to lunch. <laughs> He lets it marinate uh, in the marketplace and sees, uh, sees what the conversation actually, actually is. So, Brenda, bear bounce, something more. Just put in the best month since November of 2020. Foolhardy to believe that we can really build on this, given what's still out there in front of us? Yeah, you know, I think it's probably a little something more, and especially because I think sentiment had just become clearly way too bearish heading into second quarter earnings. And so earnings have not turned out to be as bad as everybody thought, and market reaction has certainly been encouraging in that regard. Um, so, But I do think that we need to see inflation starting to come down in the reported numbers, in the CPI numbers, and we just haven't seen that yet. Even though you could argue, you know, in June, we were starting to see um, some indicators that suggested maybe we should see a little bit of softening um, uh, within CPI, and it just hasn't happened. Um, so I think, you know, we get uh, the next reading on August 10th, which I think is going to be important. I'm not sure, though, that it's really going to show a lot of meaningful change. And But I think that is really what's needed 
for the next leg higher in this market. I don't think we're necessarily going back down, but I think we could be in for some more volatility um, if we don't start to see some real improvement in CPI. Okay, so back to you guys here. Krinsky, Jonathan Krinsky, BTIG, mm-hmm. says we have yet to see the final low for this bear market. Okay, he says if you get above 42.31, call him. He'll uh, he'll get more positive. That would be a what he says is a huge dent in the bear case. But again, he doesn't think you've seen the, the final low. Savita, who, remember, took her target down and took her earnings expectations down in the last 10 days or so, says it's premature to call a bottom, which raises the question of why are you guys able to be more positive? Why isn't it premature? Why are we bouncing in the first place? So why are we bouncing in the first place? Do you mind? Let me, right let me, I'm going to try to make this quick. When I listen to Savita, when I listen to Jonathan, I'm very smart. And let's face it, Krinsky's nailed this thing, right? Mm -hmm. What he's doing in particular is he's using historical patterns. Why not, right? You've got history. It's a pattern. Let's use it. The problem that I think is, is that for fundamental people like me, we're looking at this bear market and saying, really shouldn't have happened. I know that's controversial, but really saying, where's the recession? Okay, where's the labor market weakness? What I'm driving at here is this is unlike any other bear market we've seen. So when, by the way, by the way, we haven't seen before that as soon as the Fed starts ra- raising rates that the market turns over. That hasn't happened in the last three rate cycles. A lot of things are different this time. And so the historical patterns where we say, hey, the VIX should be above 40 or, you know, wh- wh- whatever Jonathan is saying is the reason to go down to, uh, you know, 3,600 and below may not apply. We're in this post-pandemic new world. Let me try. Let me try and make that even, <coughs> excuse me, more simple. Okay, what guided me into these trades was the bond market and the technicals. Technical break above the 50-day moving average. You, you know, it hadn't done that in in literally 60 days, right? Mm-hmm. That's compelling. You get into it. The bond market yields topped on June 14th. That led the market. Okay, so there's been buying in bonds ever since. The bond market will tell me, Scott, if I'm wrong. I'm wrong in my assessment if the bond market now reverses and we see significant selling what, pressure. I think we're back to the same question we asked last Wednesday afternoon or Thursday morning, post-Fed. Mm-hmm. Is the market getting it right or wrong? Market getting it right or wrong? That's why we're rallying, because the market thinks that the Fed is going to pivot, that they're closer to the end. The markets are taking one heck of a stance here, whether it's not just the stock market, well, the bond the, market, the Fed funds, too? 100%. But Bill Dudley, right, he says wishful thinking won't help the Fed beat inflation. His, his idea is the market's exuberance appears to stem in part from Powell's latest news conference. It has fueled speculation of a quote-unquote pivot to smaller interest rate increases, with some even arguing that the Fed has done enough already. Don't be confident about such an outcome. The whole conversation about this rally from here, whether it's a bear bounce or something more, comes down to that point. Whether the market got it right or got it wrong or is getting it wrong because the Fed is still going to raise rates. And by the way, Powell said that a lot of what they've done so far hasn't even filtered through the system yet. Let it filter through and see what happens to demand. I, I see think, what happens to the economy. I, I agree with that. I think it's the wrong reason to, to step out now and be buying the market because you think there's going to be some form of a pivot on the part of the Federal Reserve. That's wrong. The Federal Reserve has to combat inflation. They have to stay committed to combating inflation. I think maybe the right thing to ask yourself is, are they able to combat inflation and potentially 
in some of the data that's being released, there's evidence that they are combating inflation. We need to get this man some water. Do you have any water over there? <laughs> we do. We, we got, got a whole we got water. Cup here, right? the, uh-huh. We need to call cup. the reinforcements in. Get this guy some water. It's right there. Rest so, Shannon, Shannon, this idea of whether the market is right or wrong, the market certainly seemed to take Powell as more dovish, thinking that he was pointing out, well, we're, we're at neutral now, and we don't think we're going to have to go p- further, you know, that much farther past neutral. Maybe it's the three, maybe it's a touch above 3% Fed funds rate. That's why we rallied post-Fed. That's why we rallied again on Friday. That's why people don't want to get too negative now because they think that there might be this pivot underway, yet people come out and suggest, don't, not so fast. Who's right and who's wrong? I think the whole rally depends on that question. Well, is the pivot that you're talking about or that the market's expecting is for them to get more dovish in September and October? Or is really the pivot that we saw that dot plot go from March to June, that huge jump to three and a half by the end of 2022? That was jarring for the market to see that dot plot move so quickly that the expectation they anchored to that large increase. And they said, well, from June to September, We've got to anchor for another huge increase in the dot plot for the fourth for the first quarter of 2023. I think that's actually the risk that's off the table, Scott. I don't think that they're going to deviate from three and a half by the end of the year. And it might be four by the middle of next year. But what the market was afraid of was another seismic change in the dot plot from June to September, potentially some messaging out of Jackson Hole that indicated they were going to have to get increasingly more aggressive. And that is what I think the economic data, not Powell himself, but the economic data that we're seeing out of the consumer, good spending way down, services spending eh, up a bit, but not enough to offset that. That's actually what the market is trading. Uh, but, but, but you can't be, well, it might be four and in the same sentence be more positive on risk assets like, like equities because the market is not pricing you, in four. The market doesn't think they're going to four. They're not. But what I'm saying is, Scott, is that there, everyone was expecting that in the September meeting that we could see a four print on the dot plot, that they would have to get significantly more aggressive. September, October, November, that is what I think is off the table. And that's what I, I actually I agree with Joe. If you're trying to price in a meaningful pivot in September and that they're not going to get to that three and a half. That's probably not, doesn't make sense. And that's why I'm not particularly interested in some of these continued high valuation growth stocks, because I think that they are not necessarily a buy, given where we're going to be from a rate perspective by the end of the year. Let's bring in our headliner now, Brian Belsky, BMO, joining us. He's told you he thinks the bottom's in. He's got an aggressive target for stocks for the end of the year. He may, in fact, have the highest current target on the street at 4,800. His earnings are 245. That's a near 20, uh, 20 multiple on the market. So why are we rallying here? Is it all about what the market took from Powell to be dovish in thinking that this pivot is going to happen, that they're closer to the end? What is it? Thanks so much for having us. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, I think Powell's comments last week Uh, just reinforced the trend that was already occurring. I think Joe's spot on with respect to what he was talking about, the bond market really kind of led the way. 
Uh, and I think uh, this has kind of been of a, a shoulda, coulda, woulda type rally, meaning uh, a lot of people have missed this 9, 10, 11 percent move. Depends upon your benchmark. Uh, I think people were way too bearish. Uh, and uh, we've had this uh, immense squeeze. Now I think uh, what you want to kind of be looking for, Scott, quite frankly, is some sort of continuation. And we need, uh, I think, a little bit broader participation in terms of volume. We all know that we're heading into the seasonal uh, uh, soft period, let's call it, August and September. And everybody and their mother, brother, sister, cousin, uncle is going on vacation in August. So I think uh, August could be quite volatile. I don't know if I want to, if I was a short-term trader, I don't know if I'd be chasing the market here, quite frankly. Probably something you're not familiar with me talking about in terms of being a little bit cautious after such a big move. But I think this all falls through with respect to what we see in September. I don't think, I think the word pivot is too aggressive. I think the Fed has to see what happens the next couple of, of of months in terms of the data. And yeah, it's lagging, but we've already started to see this inflection point, we believe, in terms of inflation. And what we actually really need to see is we need to see the inflation trend move from an escalator down to an elevator down. And I think that's what the market really wants to see in terms of uh, being more risky in terms of stocks, quite frankly. Now, do we think inflation is going to be very a lot lower at the end of the year than it is now? Yeah, we do. Uh, but I think it's going to take some work to get there, Scott. So that's why I think the next couple of months could be a little bit more volatile than maybe that you're talking about today. You, you think uh, inflation is going to take a, a quote unquote elevator down in the next six months? I do. I do. Look at commodity prices. Look at lumber prices. Look what we've seen in, in miles driven and look what we've seen in gasoline prices. Yeah. I do think that this could be, I do think that this could fall off a lot faster than everybody thinks. And think about, too, that Farmer Jim loves to talk about onshoring, a trend that's been going on for a long time. I don't think that we're going to be, our companies in the United States are not going to be putting themselves in the same type of scenario that they did with respect to the lockdown in terms of supply chains. And I think supply chains are open. We know supply chains. I'm sorry, are opening up pretty dramatically, Scott. And I think that's all going to add up to an elevator down in inflation by the end of the year that most people are not expecting because we're still kind of playing defense. And the most bearish people, by the way, they're the ones that missed the move, Scott. They're the ones in May and June that were calling for 3,100, 3,400. And now they've missed this big move in markets. And so for them to turn bullish now, I, I think that's fantastic. I don't think they will because they want to double down down here, especially given uh, the seasonality portion of the market. But let's see some of these people fold on their on their bearish calls in September and October uh, for the year end rally. That could be a face melter. Well, the reason why people don't believe it, that that inflation is going to take an elevator down because it doesn't seem realistic. All of the I, I mean, yes, gasoline prices are down a lot. Thank God. Uh, other parts of the commodity space have come down a lot. I know you said lumber and there are many other things that you could cite, too. The problem is there are too many other things that have not come down at all. Wages haven't really budged that much. Rents are still ridiculously high and going in the, in the wrong direction, right? Things that actually matter a lot. So let's not just throw out the idea that, oh, it, you know, inflation's rolled over. In parts of, of the economy, it has. In really critical so parts, let's talk about it has not. 
So let's talk a little bit about wage inflation, something we've been talking about in, in the United States for five years. I think the, the high-end wages could actually come down a little bit. We on Wall Street are probably not going to get paid what we pe- got paid last year with all the T&E and the travel and, and all this stuff going up again this year. Clients want to see us and we're out, out and about. So the, the budgets and the margins are thinner in financial services, kind of the higher earners. On the bottom end, we are going to start to see more blue-collar jobs come in in the fourth quarter, and that's going to... That that will ease some of the, what we're seeing in terms of wage inflation on the rental side of things. Remember, mortgage rates have dropped. Nobody's really talking about that. Mortgage rates in the United States are tied to the bond market, not to the Fed. So as long as the bond market is showing what it's seeing in terms of rates going the opposite direction, we're going to see a bit of an ease in mortgage rates, and that could actually help with some of the some of the renting side of things, especially as in the home building, house building section, you're starting to see more supply come in the market, especially uh, in the United States. So Again, I think when you see the three legs of inflation, whether or not it's China, supply chain, and commodity prices, all three are beginning to lessen. And I think that's the trend that can, will, and should likely uh, accelerate to the downside in the fourth quarter. All right. Mr. Belsky, I appreciate your time very much. We'll talk to you soon. It's Brian Belsky of BMO. Let's wrap this up, uh, Jimmy. Maybe we should call this the soft landing rally. Maybe that's that's a good Maybe that's all that this is. This is the hope that you're going to, in fact, have a soft landing economy strong enough to withstand what the Fed has done. Maybe they are closer to the end. OK, um, so you're, you're, some, na- you're nailing the right description of it. You are. The, idea well, the question being is, is, is it is it realistic to think that that's what's going to happen? It is realistic, but it is not definite. And I'm glad you're coming to me for this because I want to say one thing that's important here. If this is the start of a new bull market, all right, you can't expect that we're going up in a straight line. So if over the next week, two weeks, we give five, six percentage points of this back, don't everybody freak out. Just take a look at what's going on. Joe's talked about the bond market. I'm talking about inflation. Uh, Brian was singing my song about, you know, in the intermediate term, what's to come with capital expenditures on supply chain onshoring. Just, you know, take a deep breath. If the market goes down 5%, that's what happens on your way up, all right? We don't go straight up. Yeah. All right, we'll take a quick break. David Einhorn's Greenlight Capital is taking a new position in Twitter. We're following that money next. Plus, Joe, as I said earlier, is rebalancing the Joe T ETF. He has many new buys. He has many new sells. We'll talk about the interesting moves he is making in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're keeping our eyes on Twitter shares today. They're down slightly. 
There is news. Greenlight Capital, that's David Einhorn's firm, taking a new stake in that company. Our Leslie Picker is following the money. She joins us now on the phone. This news coming out in a letter from Greenlight. And what's your take here? It's a little bit of a different kind of play for David Einhorn. <laughs> It is. So Einhorn is known more for sparring with Musk over uh, Tesla short. Now he's taking a stake in Twitter, betting on the merger uh, with Musk will close. He purchased that Twitter position at an average price of $37.24 a share with this theory that there is a 17 percent or I'm sorry, $17 per share upside if Twitter prevails in court and a $17 per share downside if the deal breaks. So kind of 50-50 uh, is kind of how he is, he's marking it, but says that 95% of the time, a deal like this will indeed close. Um, and he believes that the Delaware court is incentivized to follow the law and apply here because if Musk were to get off the hook, it would invite many more buyers for more suits. And, you know, it would call into question the, the credibility of the court as a whole. So specifically in the report he or in the letter, he quotes, by saying that in 2019, this was largely in relation to Tesla, uh, the accepted reality appeared to be that Elon Musk is above the law. He was half joking, half serious, but he believed that the law would catch up to him at some point and says that it hasn't. Now he says that the, the quip that Musk is above the law has become a widely held belief. So it's that notion that the laws won't apply here, explained partially why Twitter is still trading well above that or well below its 54.20 per share deal price that Musk agreed to. You know, I can't help but but wonder uh, here, Leslie, um, how much of this from Einhorn is a true belief in the the merger arb op of of the situation, and how much goes back to his, you know, running issues, if you want to call him that, with <laughs> with Musk and a, a chance to win so to speak, at Musk's expense if he's forced to go through with the deal? I think it's a good question. If you recall kind of the history there, there were the short shorts that were said. There were, you know, some kind of, uh, over Twitter, ironically, some back and forth between the two over that long-held Tesla short. Unclear if he's still holding it. However, his performance has been uh, pretty outstanding this year. A return to value investing has served him well. They are up 13.2% in the first half of the year compared to a 20% decline in the S&P 500. So finally back to tremendous outperformance for a well-known value investor. The question is to kind of whether he is, uh, you know, how, how widely held the belief is. It's hard to say without uh, knowing exactly the size of the stake, which we don't at this point in time. We don't know how big that position is that Greenlight holds in Twitter. The fact that he says, you know, 95% of the time we do see deals like this ultimately get closed, 95% plus, um, you know, you know, perhaps he does see some sort of opportunity to make, uh, you know, a decent return on an investment at 37.24 per share. Yeah. Yeah. Les, thank you. Uh, I appreciate it very much. Guys, I mean, it, it's and Leslie mentioned it. Um, the performance of, of Greenlight has, has been fantastic this year. Eight and a half percent about in the in the second quarter and 13.2 for the first half of 22, obviously compared to the, the notable declines in the S&P uh, 500. By the way, that quarterly outperformance versus the S&P was the best relative performance in the history of the partnerships. That gives you an idea of just how well he's been doing lately. And so many things have been said about his performance over the last you know, handful of, of years relative to the market that it's, 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 
It's certainly worth underscoring uh, when he has doing extraordinarily well. It should be mentioned as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I, to me, David is seeing the ball like Aaron Judge right now. <laughs> and, and that's clearly the way that he's been, uh, you know, trading and investing around the capital markets for the entirety of 2022. So that's, Scott, why I like this deal. I like what he's doing here. He's in at a good price. He's in at a good price. He's correct. 95% of the time, this deal should actually close. Okay, we assign a 50-50 uh, value to it actually happening. I think a lot of the de- deterioration in Twitter's stock also had to do with the market coming down as well. Now the market's somewhat improving. So even if Elon Musk pays the billion dollars and walks away from the deal, how much downside really is left in Twitter right now? I think we've already priced in the potential downside. I like what David's doing. The other thing, Jimmy, that, that David says is when he notes the outperformance uh, of uh, in the quarter was the best in the history of the partnerships, as I mentioned. Does this he asks this question, does this mean that value investing is back? We think the answer is still a resounding no. I like that. Really? That's what I, he said. I didn't catch that part. And it That's surprises me. Here's why it surprises me. If I were in a locked room and said, give me one answer why he's doing well this quarter, it's simply that price matters in a rising interest rate environment. Price of shares matters when money is no longer free, which is the story of this year. Uh, and I don't see us going back to free money anytime soon. So I would think that price will continue to matter. Doesn't mean that growth at a reasonable price can't do well, but it does mean that the hyper growth stocks, uh, what Shannon was referring to as long duration stocks, probably aren't going to work. And that's what she was saying. I agree. Probably are not going to work anytime soon. I think price is going to continue to matter and David Einhorn will continue to do well. Okay. Let's get the headlines now with Frank Holland. Hey, Frank. Scott, here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Russia appears to not think much of President Biden's statement today that he wants the U.S. to expeditiously negotiate a new nuclear arms control treaty if the Kremlin is ready to engage. Speaking to Reuters, a foreign minister source asked mockingly, is this a serious statement or has the White House website been hacked? Back here in the U.S., the death toll rising to 30 in Kentucky after severe flooding in that state. The number is expected to rise. Rescue workers have been searching for missing people. They've really been hampered by the devastation that's been left behind. And a collection of jewelry that Elvis Presley gave to his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, is going up for auction on August the 27th. Two items, 200 items, excuse me, including gold rings encrusted with jewels. Cufflinks, watches, and chains have been brought together by GWS Auctions. Many of those pieces were provided by Presley's former wife, Priscilla Presley. That's the very latest. Scott, back over to you. Thank you very much for that. Still ahead on the half. As we said, Joe has many moves to rebalance his Joe T ETF. We also have Santoli's midday word, our calls of the day, still ahead as well. We're back right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number 
and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. A big July with big gains in the S&P 500. ETF traders have been actively playing the news on all fronts, surprisingly pouring money into bond funds, of all things. Let's find out what traders have been up to and what we'll be up to in August. Joining me now is Ben Slavin. He's the global head of ETFs at BNY Mellon. Andrew McCormick is the managing director at Wallach-Beth Capital. And, Andrew, I'll start with you. I was surprised to see sizable inflows into bond funds. I saw inflows into government bond funds, corporate mm-hmm. bond funds. Even high yield was getting inflows. What are investors thinking? Well, I think when you have the recovery of a U-right-shaped correction or a U-correction, of not a V, you're going to have to tend people dip their toes in the water first with bonds. At least that's what the institutional investors are doing. So when you look at high-yield corporate long duration, all up 6% for the month, you have GOVT and TLT with $9 billion of inflows. And then you will go, what about the high-yield, right? It's a little bit riskier. Well, we have tactical clients that have started to pour the money into HYG and J&K. I think there are $6 billion in inflows this month since July. And many of them were out early. So now they're ahead of the game. And that's kind of their first step before getting into the things that the retail investors in queues and spiders. Now, Ben, I don't know if you have thoughts on bond inflows, but in contrast to that, flows into equity funds, they've been kind of flattish this year and even in July. But I did see some flows into growth funds uh, and out of value. On the other side, some money into high dividend ETFs. They're playing SPHD, for example. Uh, do you see any clear trends in equity flows? What stuck out to you and what do you think is going to happen in August? Well, it's really a lack of consensus or lack of conviction here. Um, you know, really, I'm not sure whether investors are buying the dip, but we have seen those products like SPHD, which I think sum up where ETF investors are at. They're looking to remain defensive in this market and also still look to attract uh, some income or add some income to their portfolio, especially income that's away from the bond market. Now, we've seen dividend ETFs more broadly pick up uh, some investor interest. I would expect Um, those types of dividend ETFs to continue to attract some interest from investors. But again, in this market, we do see, um, you know, a lot of defensive positioning, uh, including those products that provide some sort of a market hedge in this environment, um, either the, you know, providing some downside protection or some additional income overlay like a QILD, for example, um, that's quite popular with investors. Okay, I'm going to have much more on ETF flows, including an uptick in actively managed ETFs and ETFs that provide a market hedge in the event of a downturn. We've seen some inflows there, and we've even seen inflows into ETFs that chase the inflation trade. All that's coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime reports returns right after this. All right, let's do this, Joe. Uh, This rebalance from the Momentum ETF that you manage couple de- notable points before we get to actual names. The first increase to tech after five consecutive reductions. Why now? Very important to understand that. Uh, we are underweight technology still, but we have been gradually taking technology down from a high point in January of 2021 of 34%. We had gotten it as low as 20% in April. Now we take that up to 23%. So I think it's reflective of what's going on in the market right now, where growth was carried at an underweight 
Growth now beginning to slowly need to be elevated in its weighting. Okay. Um, underweight what relative to the S&P. Relative to the S&P, correct. But still considerable. Considerable. Placing your bet on, on where you think growth is going to go in, in the months ahead. You reduced financials for the second straight quarter. Yes. Why? Uh, underperformance. There, there, it's, it's clear that there has been that. Uh, in terms of the quality factor, financials still set up well. But there has been underperformance in the last two quarters for financials. You got more energy, less industrials. That's not going to make Jimmy happy, but tell, tell me why. Tell him why. Energy weighting up to 9%. That's very aggressive now relative to the S&P 500. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think the opportunity is in energy based on the supply concerns in particular as we move into the winter. We took positions in refiners for the first time. Philip 66 and Valero. Mm-hmm. We also introduced uh, energy product partners, EPD. 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 That's the first entree there as well. So the supply challenges moving into the winter were increasing the energy positioning, concerned on the CapEx side for industrials outside of the agriculture story. And by the way, we bought Mosaic. I think you'll like that one. But you, so you bought Devon, you bought Diamondback, mm-hmm. and and. What's notable here is, and you said it, you're, you're almost double the weighting of the S&P for energy. That's exactly where we want to be. And it kind of balances out the increase in growth that we're seeing for technology. Okay. You bought Datadog. I did. Which is very interesting to me. Why? Hypergrowth, if you think about it. That's the first, that's the first step towards hypergrowth. But this is a company. Hyper PE? Hyper PE, absolutely. I will acknowledge that, but the first step towards it. Does it it have an E? uh, Revenue growth, 70% year on year. How about free cash flow generation above 20% for this company? This company is universally, the analysts applaud this company. 20 buys, four holds. The average price target has come down significantly. Mm -hmm. I think it's probably, I think it is on Goldman Sachs' conviction buy list. So if we were going to take a little bit of a step towards hyper growth, this is a name that I was very comfortable doing. And also bought this personally myself, took a position in it this morning. Okay. MasterCard. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, I mean, it's, it's clear that MasterCard has been uh, an outperformer along with Visa so far year to date. But you're seeing the sales growth accelerate. 21% last quarter. Uh, that's a lot better than the average of the last three years, which was 9%. So that quality factor, improving revenue growth, you'd like to see that return on equity, debt to equity, which we also factor in strong as well. On semi is the last of the buys. And then we got to go through yeah, you, some sales. You, you, get a, you, know, you get this on sale this morning um, after earnings. It's down. I, I would you know, advise the viewers to really study the earnings report because there's nothing in here that's that's troublesome. I think the expectations are just really high. Uh, this is exposure to EVs. It's a semi-play, relatively cheap on valuation. Jimmy, don't get excited. 18%. Okay, that's pretty good, but it's got the strong revenue growth as well. So it screens well uh, for quality. And so far, year to date, this is one of the better performing semiconductor stocks. Okay, let's go through some of the sells. Number one, Amazon. Uh, it's the big one. I mean, Scott, you knew what I was going to do with this position. Um, and listen, personally, I call it the April Fool trade because that's what I was. I bought this stock up at 165 personally myself. Instead of uh, relying on my intuition, I should just rely on the rules-based approach of the methodology, we, uh, we have the quarterly rebalance in the middle of earnings season because we want the latest earnings information to affect our decision process, right? So Amazon, we get the 14% decline 
post April 28th. We buy it on April 29th at 125. Well, guess what? We get a 13% bump Thursday afternoon. I'm watching you on overtime. Friday, we're a, sell, we're a seller at 135. It turns into be a profitable trade, but it's time to step to the sidelines on Amazon. All right, so we got Amazon gone. Cisco gone. Cisco's gone as well. Revenue miss, uh, large revenue guidance down. We're seeing the, the, the quality factor deteriorate significantly. Uh, Cisco down 28% year to date as well. Moderna, gone. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God. Uh, this, this has been in the portfolio since July of last year. It has been the worst performing name in the portfolio, down over 50% on our buy. We you know, get it wrong sometimes. Do you, think, do you think he's watching? Weiss? I was thinking of that, too. I didn't even want to bring him up. I didn't want to bring him up. You knew who I was referring to. I didn't want to stoke to. the ego. <laughs> now we brought it up. We well brought done. it up. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate that. One in every crowd. Free, <laughs> Freeport. <laughs> July 21st, er, earnings deterioration, elevated costs, uh, weak guidance, just just not a good story to tell on the fundamental side. And we're also seeing a little bit of underperformance down 12.5%. All right. Tweet coming in three, <laughs> two, one. Check tweet deck. All right. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Thanks. Joe has one more name he is trading. That is coming up shortly. And next, Mike Santoli has his midday word. We're back in two minutes. All right, we are back, and so too is senior markets commentator Mike Santoli from the New York Stock Exchange for his midday word. Welcome back. It's good to have you back. So if, if, which is more accurate here, soft, soft landing rally, pivot rally, neutral rally? What do you think makes most sense? Um, I think, first of all, all of them are plausible right now. We have this kind of three-forked road. Um, right now, it feels as if there's enough evidence to say it's a – a growth scare, a deep slowdown. Um, the rally is feeding off of a you know, loosening of financial conditions, which could be consistent with people saying the Fed's going to pivot or with the fact that we get there the hard way, which is uh, bond markets saying we're going to have a deeper slowdown and, uh, and the Fed's not really going to choose to pivot, but going to be forced to. I'm not sure which of those it is. I do know this market has fed off of deeply negative sentiment and positioning since the end of June. There's probably some more of that to go. Uh, I would argue in the valuation compression we saw coming into the reporting season for earnings has clearly set the market up uh, to be able to absorb some messy uh, reports and, and basically say, yeah, our estimates are coming down, but not uh, in a jarring way just yet. Uh, I think it's plausible to say the mid-June low could be consequential, could be important here. But you know what? If we're retesting that low, it's 12 percent down from here. So there's nothing easy about this. Yeah, I know you're away. I'm assuming you paid a, at least a little bit of attention sure. to how the market reacted to the, to the Fed. What's your own sense in terms of whether the market gets it right or, or wrong or what happened? Because, you know, you, I know you saw Dudley today suggest yes. that the market's got it wrong. Look, I don't think that we can make that conclusion yet. Think about how much the Fed outlook has changed in the last six months. You have to be humble about saying what it's going to be six months down the road. Uh, I think we have a window here. Seven weeks till the next Fed meeting. Uh, we front-loaded a lot of gains. We're near neutral. That could be enough for now for the market to say we'll worry about it when we have to. Good stuff. I'll see you for your last word. I look forward to doing that again. Right, That's good. Mike Santoli Thanks, at the Stock Exchange. Up next, we have trades on some of the biggest day. An upgrade of one retail stock. I also mentioned that we have to get to one more move, a stock that Joe sold as part of that rebalance. We're back right after this. 
We're back. Calls of the daytime. There it is. Target up by two and a quarter percent, up to overweight from equal at Wells Fargo. Price target goes to 195 from 155. I mentioned it most uh, importantly because you sold it, Joe, from the Terra Nova ETF. This was difficult because we've owned it since inception, but you, you, the, the growth is just accelerating too quickly. Uh, 4% growth in the last quarter. The average was 16% uh, over the, the, the prior two years. And down 29% roughly in our last quarter. So we had to remove it from the portfolio. Shan, did he make the right move here, getting rid of Target now? I think so, Scott. I think there's a couple of quarters additionally of headwinds here. The higher margin businesses, the middle of the store is going to remain under pressure with good spending falling you know, precipitously over the course of the last couple of months. I think he made the right call. Brenda, what do you think? I agree. Even though valuation has become a lot more compelling, I agree that over the next couple of quarters, comparisons are tough and there's going to be some headwinds, especially on the consumer side with goods related spending. Mm. Let's talk about a call on ExxonMobil. Target gets bumped to uh, 89 from 83, goes right to the energy trade. You, you heard from Joe earlier. He's almost double the, the weighting of the S&P. Uh, Brenda, the Chevron price target got cut to 160 from 166, which you own. We do. They reported a good quarter. This is not one of the it's one of the more expensive names within the, the, the group, but we continue to like it. They, historically, they've been incredibly financially disciplined, had less leverage than peers. Uh, growth still looks compelling uh, currently, especially with their assets in the Permian Basin. So we continue to really to like the stock here. All right. And quickly, Shan, AbbVie got downgraded today to neutral at Atlantic. Price goes to 162. It's at 142 now. You own it among, uh, you know, Joe owns it, Jim owns it, but I want to hear from you. Yeah, we trimmed this stock back in March. We think that there are a couple of quarters of uncertainty here, especially around Humira. Um, there's concerns about the slowing growth there. Expected, um, but they have a longer-term immunology portfolio that's really strong, Scott. And so I would hold it, but I would be prepared for a little bit of underperformance in the near term. All right, good stuff. We'll do final trades after this quick break. Overtime today, 4 o'clock Eastern. I hope you'll be with me in three hours. Pinterest earnings coming out, so we get a good read again on the ad market, digital advertising, social media, et cetera. Ed Yardeni is August playbook. Have we, in fact, hit the bottom? Bear bounce or something more? We'll ask him. And Anastasia Amoroso will join us as well from iCapital as we kick around that same question, enter a new month for trading, and I'll see all of you in just a few. Shannon, final trade. Uh, air products, uh, industrial gases, we're continuing to see increasing industrial production here in the United States and globally. Um, and this is an area that, um, from a valuation perspective, still looks pretty attractive. All right. Thank you. Brenda? Um, TJX, we're not generally fans of uh, brick and mortar retail, but we think this company is really well positioned, not only for consumers trading down, but also for the access to really high quality inventory that they should be getting access to on the goods side and on the apparel side. Okay. Farmer Jim. Uh, Qualcomm, this is another one of those stocks that responded poorly to earnings, but now is regaining its footing, much like GM last week. That's my final trade. Okay. And Joe T. Reestablished. We reestablished a long position in Joe T. for Abbott Labs. Healthcare still carried it in overweight. Ah, okay. Good stuff. Thanks for sharing all that with us. Thank you. you know our viewers like that, too. I'll see all of you in overtime. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, 
Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 